Thank you. Uh, hi, as you said, my name is Rochelle, and I am the membership assistant at Penn Center USA. Uh, we're excited to be here today to support Penn American Center's Writers Emergency Fund and um, this great series put on by Penn America. For, um, for those of you who don't know, there are two Penn Centers located here in the United States and 140 internationally. Penn American Center is located in New York and Penn Center USA is located here in Los Angeles and serves the Western United States. We do this through four channels of action. We have the Freedom to Write Advoca Advocacy Network where we advocate for imperiled writers, the Emerging Voices Fellowship, an eight-month literary fellowship that aims to provide new writers with the tools they need to launch a professional writing career, Pen in the Community, which is our Writers in Schools program, and the annual Literary Awards and Festival, which culminated this week and which celebrates the best writing in the West. We offer membership levels for published and produced writers, readers and supporters, students and booksellers. All members share our commitment to the betterment of the literary community and advocacy for freedom of, of expression, both internationally and domestically. The annual dues provide provide significant financial support that allows us to carry out the work of Penn Center USA, and they grant a crucial endorsement that gives our center the authority to advocate on behalf of writers wherever they are imperiled. You can find us online and on Facebook if you want to find out more about our programs and our membership, and I'll be here after if anyone has any questions for us. Thank you. Cool. All right, up next is Julia Farrow. Julia Farrow is the author of the novels Cutting Teeth and the forthcoming The Gatsby Moth Summer. A graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop, Julia funded the Sackett Street Writers' Workshop in 2002. Julia's work has been published or is forthcoming in the Millions, Poets, and Writers, Flavor Wire, Glamour, Psychology Today, and she has been profiled in Elle Magazine, Brooklyn Magazine, The Observer, and The Economist. Julia. All right, I'm just going to go ahead and introduce all the panelists now. Cool. Up next is Wendy C. Ortez. Or Ortiz. Yeah, cool. Uh, Wendy Ortiz is the author of Excavation, a memoir, Hollywood Notebook, and the forthcoming uh, Broha. Yeah. Broha. Uh, she holds an MA in clinical psychology and an MFA in creative writing for well, um, Antioch uh, University, Los Angeles. A writer in re residence a at Hedridge, Hedbrook. Sorry, I'm really nervous, everyone. I don't know why. I just am. <laughs> uh, at Hedgebrook in 2007 and 2009. Wendy is also co-founder and curator of the uh, Rhapsod Rhapsodomy. <laughs> what, how do you say it? Right of, wow, okay. I don't feel bad about that one. Uh, uh, Reps reading series. She has been a, <coughs> she has been, she has been an adjunct uh, faculty in creative writing and has also facilitated creative writing workshops with Los Angeles youth and juvenile detention facilities. Cool. All right, up next is Robin Rinaldi. Robin Rinaldi is a journalist and author of The Wild Oats Project, One Women's Midlife Quest for Passion of Any Cost, or uh, at Any Cost. Previously, previously, she was executive editor at 7x7 Seven Seven and wrote an award-winning food column for Philadelphia Weekly. Robin has written for The New York Times, The Atlantic, Oprah Magazine, and Yoga Journal, among others. 
right, last but not least is J. Ryan Straddle. Uh, he is an author, <coughs> he is an editor at large at Unnamed Press, fiction editor at, at the Nervous Breakdown, ad advisory board member at 2826LA, and co-producer and host of the literary culinary series Hot Dish. He is the New York Times bestselling author of Kitchens of the Great Midwest. His short his short work appears in Hobart, The Wall Street Journal, The Guardian, The Rumpus, The Los Angeles Review of Books, and Midnight, or sorry, yeah, Midnight Breakfast, among other places. Cool. Yeah. <coughs> All right, and the moderator for the night is Anna March. Anna March is the organizer of this Beyond Lolita series happening in five cities nationwide. Her writing has appeared in a wide variety of publications, including the New York Times Modern Love Column, New York Magazine, Tin House, VQR, Hip Mama, and Bustle. Uh, she, writes <laughs> she writes regular for Salon and the Rumpus, uh, where she also has a weekly books column and a March's reading mixtape. She frequently writes on topics in the political and popular culture related to intersectional feminism, sexuality, and gender. She is founder of Lit Folks, a literary hosting organization here in LA, and with Alicia Ford, co-founder of Lulu, a uh, new orga organization supporting gender and racial injustice. Her, memory hap uh, sorry, her memoir, Happy People Live Here, is forthcoming as is her novel, The Diary of Suzanne Frank. She is at work on an essay collection, uh, We Can Do It, Notes from Feminist Killjoy. Without further ado, uh, Anna March. hear me without the microphone? One thing that happened is, um, let's see, what happened? Well, I quickly realized that, um, you know, I, I had heard and from other writers and just from my lifetime of reading before I wrote this book, I saw that sex is a very tricky subject for a lot of writers and a lot of writers, even the best writers, will often avoid it. You'll get to the bedroom door and then the next someone's frying pancakes the next morning and you know you kind of or you get a couple of sentences about the sheets or the sunlight coming in the room through the blinds you know but you're really skipping a lot of the details that you would get if say somebody was cooking a meal or going to the library or getting a cancer diagnosis you know or going to a funeral and um my experience was it wasn't that hard to write about sex. You just have to go into that room and describe what you see, like you do in every other room of a house when you're writing a book. <laughs> the hard part <laughs> is then talking about it afterwards and responding to people's response to it. And um, talking about it is a lot harder than writing about it. Uh, writing about it's even easier than doing it. <laughs> Honestly. Uh, it, so, uh, for me, anyway, I mean, I'm only speaking for myself. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, so,
So the response to it then, so then suddenly people are asking me all kind of questions about non-monogamy and cheating on my husband and sleeping with women and why did I think this was going to make me happier at the age of 45 and blah, blah, blah. And um, I, suddenly I was like, oh my God, like this is, I don't, I have, I have no idea how to answer this question. I start saying a lot of stupid things and then the slut shaming comes in, you know, then I start getting the hate tweets that are, you know, I hope you die. Uh, I hope you get AIDS. So good that you never um, multiplied. You know that you never had children. Um, I hope you're. You know, I hope there's shit running down your leg when you're an old lady and you're rocking chair and you're alone. And I was like, wow, wow. Um, it's amazing what people hold around sex. And it's everything from, you know, the highest highs to the lowest lows, shame, trauma, sexism, um, elation, you know, everything that sex contains, you kind of open yourself to when you write about it. So, like, I got called a slut, but that doesn't mean that a man who wrote the kind of book that I wrote wouldn't have gotten his own thing. Um, he would have probably gotten called an asshole or a sexist or, you know, a womanizer. He wouldn't have gotten called a slut because we don't use that word on men. But, you know, when you're a woman, then that's what you get called. And, um, and you kind of quickly realize that it is taboo and that you know, there's a continuum. I mean, it's more taboo in certain religions and certain parts of the country than it is in certain other cities or certain other, you know, secular humanist type situations. But you see that you are really touching on people's deepest seat of desires and fears and memories and everything. Um, and I think that's what makes writing about it such a challenge, is you're really going into a the deepest place. And so it's not that, you know, writing the words down is all that hard. It's just like writing anything else. It's dealing with it afterwards that's kind of challenging. Is that good? That's good. Is that enough? Mm, that's enough. Okay. A woman who I've known a very long time um, said to me, oh, do you know that Robin Rinaldi? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I do know Robin. And she was like, do you know about her book? And she just had that tone. And this woman's a feminist. She's kind of a prominent feminist. And it was just like, what? what is that? And I think there's, I think it's not always from the people who you think it's going to be from that are not yeah. okay about Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I act like I'm looking. It's funny. It's so weird because I just looked at Bad Feminist by Roxane Gay, which I love that book. But I act like a bad feminist in several places in the book. Like, you know, when I, you know, slap me in the face and, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, I'm saying no, but I think I really mean yeah. It's terrible. I mean, there's all kinds of taboos that happen when you really talk on, write honestly or talk honestly about sex. And um, that's what makes sex great. It's out of our control. It's mysterious. Um, you know, thousands and thousands of years of, you know, trying to stamp down on it has not worked. <laughs> you know? Uh, so, right, but from both sides there can be that. But from any side there can be that, yeah. yeah. Julia. Um, Julia and I get together publicly and talk about sex all the time. Um, yeah. Don't we? I mean, we're always sort of talking I about know. sex. I yes, um, we are. So, Julia, um, uh, Robin brought up the point about you get to the po part in the book where people are going to have sex, right. and then there's sunlight and people are frying eggs or whatever, <laughs> but not, not in cutting teeth. 
and cutting teeth, people have sex. <laughs> um, they do. And mommies have sex. Yes, which and is a whole sex, other. Which is a whole, yeah. which is a whole separate question. So tell us about that. Tell us about writing ex- Well, um, I mean, it's interesting. I just want to respond to a little bit of what what Robin was saying. Hi, I'm sure. Um, because, you know, because I write mostly fiction and I'm like, even in a, in, you know, in the sort of safety of the fictional veil, I'm kind of terrified of that response. You know, um, I think it's really also, you know, to think about what it means to be a published author today versus what it was before you know the internet um when there was this huge sort of expected you know gulf between the reader and the writer but now as a writer and i see this also with you know just my younger writing students also you know really nothing is private you know and even as a fiction writer even though i'm very open about writing autobiographically based fiction um you know, I think that, you know, there is also that sort of, um, you know, response from readers. You know, they're just like, I know this is you. And you're like, I wish it was. Right. Um, because for me, so I, you know, I'm, I've been on a lot of panels about writing about sex, which is amazing because I've only recently written dramatized sex scenes um in my in my novel and i avoided writing you know dramatization of sex for many years and when i did it was very vague or it was very it was either like terrible violent sex or it just it i wrote about it in a way that felt safe because it was either very distant emotionally or you know, it was just very vague writing. And I think part of that is because I have a, a literary background, having gotten an MFA in creative writing very young. And that's where I formed as a writer. And it just didn't seem acceptable in the MFA program, in workshop, to have these dramatized sex scenes, which I think is more about a fear of emotion and sentimentality and melodrama, but really just emotion. Um, Because it is, you know, sex is often, maybe always, for a few seconds, minutes, I don't know, um, you know, one of the most vulnerable places, emotionally, physically, you know, um, socially. So I think that that's, it's just an incredible place to, you know, sort of, inform yourself of your characters, inform the reader, reveal, expose, always with compassion, of course. Um, But so when I wrote Cutting Teeth, there were people were having sex in their minds. Um, There was a lot of fantasies, and there was also sex with themselves. And then when my editor read it, when she wanted to buy it, she was like, what's going on here? You're not going there. And it really took, you know, this pretty much a stranger at that point to sort of like open my eyes and be like, you're totally avoiding 
any kind of sex scene. And it was an issue that I'd been teaching my students who, who many of whom are very literary, they want to write in a very subtle, restrained, emotionally restrained way where the reader has to sort of do a lot of interpretive work to figure out what's going on. And anything overt, right, is like the death of, like they think like the writing gods are going to strike them dead. And... Um, so I sat down and I wrote some dramatized sex scenes and I was like, oh my gosh, I think it might actually be easier. Um, it's a good thing my husband's not here. But, um, and I think also, you know, personally, you know, in real life, I'm pretty uptight. <laughs> you know, like my parents, there's almost a generation between my parents and I. They are from a whole other universe, you know. Um, you know, like just very conservative. And um, and also I'm just like, you know, just as a sensory person, just, you know, I'm just, I'm more introverted. So in the fictional world, right, it's like... I can be another person. I can be comfortable. Um, so I think that for me, that was really surprising. Um, and then what was most surprising was that, you know, readers like old ladies at the library want to talk to you and they're like, you know, they come up to you and they're like, I want to read your book, but my friend told me it's X-rated. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like... I don't think so. I don't think it's X-rated. Um, it's not. But, you know, so um, I'm still kind of amazed that I'm able to find that confidence to write about it um, in a way. So I do sort of feel like a beginner. And I learn, and we've been on panels about writing about sex. I'm like the beginner that's on all the panels. And um, I've learned a lot. You know, like in my new book, um, something that Gina Frangello said, who's really, you know, her novels and her stories are really, you know, I, I recommend them to a lot of my students who are like, I want to try writing a sex scene. Um, just about, I remember she said something about how, like, you know, you know, they need to be surprising in some way. So, like, now in my new novel, I'm working on, like, you know, a teenager having like an enjoyable first sex experience, you know, so it's I have to constantly sort of fight myself against stereotyping or falling into generalizations even still. So it's not like it's easy. I think that's a good thing to keep in mind that just because you're doing it doesn't mean if some of you are writers yourselves, I mean if you're doing it doesn't mean that you just sit down at the page and here it comes and it's all piece of cake. Although at this point my husband said, is there anything left about our sex life to write about? So, I mean, maybe it does. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe it does. Especially living in that town of 300 people. Like in New York Magazine, I published a sex diary. Um, so literally people in town were like, so that's where you were when you didn't come to our party. And I was like, yeah. oh, no. Because it was literally yeah. like, we blew off the party to stay home and have sex. And then, like, you know, and I mean, 300 people, people know who you are. And even not, I mean, my husband is a paraplegic in a wheelchair. And I have pink hair, and we're not hard to spot. <laughs> and, and, you know, so I mean, literally, we're, some, we're having dinner in New York, and people will come up and say, Are you, like, are you, like, Anna March from my Facebook? And, like, and my husband's like, I gotta go, because um, we, I had a modern love, and it wasn't, there's, was, like, one line about sex, like, one line about sex. 
then they made a little movie of us, like these little movies they make. So um, I said to Adam, is there anything you want me to tell them they can't ask? They send people and they interview you in separate rooms and all this. And he said, no, they can ask me anything. So the very first thing they said was, tell us how you have sex. And he was like, he came out of the room like glaring at me. Like, <laughs> I, I was like, they asked you all about sex. He's like, of course, they asked me all about sex. So um, maybe it gets easier in your personal life if you just do it a lot and you've talk to your father-in-law over dinner about your teenage sex life a bunch of times. But that's another story. Um, so speaking of things that are difficult, sex scenes that are difficult to write about, that takes us right to Wendy Ortiz's book, Excavation. You want to tell us about Excavation, Wendy? Um, so I, I talk about it in different ways, um, but the, the way that is easiest and where I can start is by saying that the book is a memoir about a sexual relationship that was initiated with me by my teacher, my junior high teacher, um, between the ages of 13 to 18. Um, so writing writing that, um, I have. it's interesting because I feel like I've always been waiting for people to come at me and troll me and say things about me from this book, and that has not happened. There's the wood here. <laughs> um, it, it's um, instead, I get a lot of mostly women contacting me who tell me that they have had similar experiences. That um, this is to me. I wrote this book because I was looking for books like this when I was 14, 15, going through this experience. Um, and I read Lolita when I was 14 because I heard, I literally heard the police song, Don't Stand So Close to Me, and was like, oh, this sounds really similar to something that I'm going through. Um, but then, you know, reading Lolita is quite different from the experience that I was in. Um, and I couldn't find the books um, about what I was going through. So I decided that I was going to write about it at some point. I was a. I kept all kinds of meticulous notes and journals and wrote dialogue and everything from the whole experience. And then it took me many years to actually get it out there because there was still a lot of shame around the whole experience. Um, a lot of like, how, how do I describe this? How do I describe this? How it happened? How I felt? How do I describe having pleasure in this experience? Um, and uh, how do I be authentic as I write this? And it took 14 years to really be able to write it in a way that I felt good about. Um, and so, yeah, I feel really lucky that I haven't had... A, I've had a lot of support around this, this book and this topic. Um, it's something that when I get approached by people, it's usually talking about... Um, even though it's not the same exact experience for other people, typically people come to me and say, I had this experience, and it's usually about power dynamics. Um, so I'm super interested in writing about that as well, like the power dynamics involved in sex. Um, and so I, I feel like I was very conscientious about how much sex would be in this book. And I remember when I f wrote the first draft, my um, my first mentor who read it, Bernard Cooper, was like, when, when I actually wrote the first, like the first time that we actually had like sexual intercourse, penile vaginal intercourse, he read it and was like, 
oh my God, this is like, this totally made me blush and made me feel weird. And, you know, let's, let's, let's look at this. And I think I wrote it from that perspective of the 14-year-old who was just like, whoa, what is this? What's going on? Because she was excited, and she did not understand the full ramifications of what was happening. She understood it on some level, but she had excitement, and it was an experience that she would you know, be excited to write about as well. So I've had to, in writing the book, I really felt like I wanted to walk this fine line between like I'm going to um, at times describe this experience in the way that I experienced it which means that you might get turned on by it and then you'll feel really uncomfortable about being turned on by it because that is authentic to my experience um, so yeah it's it's a complicated it's a complicated book for me it's complicated yeah it was a complicated experience there's a uh great Lolita scholar uh, who has this line that I'm probably mangling but it's the experience of reading Lolita is like going to bed with a prostitute and waking up with a librarian (laughs) and um, because you think it's going to be one thing and it's this thing but it's Mm -hmm. then it's not it's this other thing Mm -hmm. and I might argue that it's actually another thing Mm -hmm. but anyway um, Um, I think we could have a whole another panel on Lolita. Um, well, I think that sometimes Lolita is used kind of still to uh, legitimize over-sexualization of young girls. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I think that um, I think that Humbert is an c- incredibly compelling character. Um, and I think Nabokov is a, a masterful writer that allows us to sympathize with someone who's a terrible monster. But I think sometimes um, people lose fact, like, lose sight of the fact that there's a 12-year-old being sexually, and she's 12 in the novel, um, a 12-year-old being sexually abused, and that's not sexy. Yeah. It's, and I think we lose sight of that. Um, although I'm not the one who came up with the title of the series. But I was happy that it was that um, the the character in my novel, who my, Suzanne has, who my Suzanne has sex with, is has rewritten Lolita. He's a Lolita scholar, and he um, has re- rewritten Lolita um, with Lolita as a boy and Claire Quilty as a woman. So it's I'm pretty into Lolita. Um, <laughs> I could use a break for a year. Um, thank you. Um, Jay Ryan's book um, Kitchens of the Great Midwest Gabriel Garcia Marquez presents sex as a problematic if not completely unreliable way to express and interpret love and I was thinking about that when I was thinking about Jay Ryan in this panel because he writes so fully about desire and heart and love in Kitchens of the Great Midwest what one reviewer calls a feast of desires and so my question to you, Jay Ryan, is in that way, in some ways, can kitchens be kind of um, a primer on how to write the emotional aspects of sex? <laughs> which I think too often... I hope so. Which I think too often get tossed aside. Yeah, right, right. Well, most of my characters want to have sex. <laughs> some of them want to have sex and don't. 
so it's based on my experience. <laughs> but also, um, one of the things that interests me most about sex scenes is the emotional quotient. In literature, behavior reveals character. Everyone knows the mechanics of sex. Well, most people. I think hopefully above you know, a certain age. I don't know. <laughs> but um, I don't think we need to be reminded of that. I don't think that's what's interesting to me or to m- most readers about sex scenes. But rather, what? why are these characters having sex? And what? Why? what's unique about this event for these two characters? So in writing about... Uh, Emotions and emotion and the emotional quotient of characters in my novel Kitchens. I felt like I wanted to write about characters who um, I think would view their sex lives as um, as much a part of their emotional lives as anything else. Uh, I was talking to Julia before this event actually about how uh, we should have taped it. We should. <laughs> uh, it's too ennobling. I, I but but I would it would have been nice to overhear it. Um, about how one of the things that is troubling to us in a lot of writing classes or MFA classes is how sentiment and sentimentality is tamped down. How there's, it's basically been, since the early 90s, like since the, like the rise of the reign of David Foster Wallace and Dave Eggers, like it's kind of been extinguished, uh, at least from like cool writing. Uh, and... I never wanted to be cool. I never could be cool anyway, so I decided early on I wasn't going to be. Uh, and so I, I have emotions very up front in my book, and I really like that. I, I don't shy away from it, but I, I think it's unfortunate that a lot of young writers are taught to avoid it, are taught to avoid describing how a character feels, that it's some kind of cheat or it's some kind of um, end around on actually writing intelligently. Uh, like the reader should be able to discern from the characters' actions how they feel. Uh, sometimes getting into the character's head and having a little bit of a, oh, subjective exposition on an experience from the character's emotional perspective is really, really useful. And, and quite frankly, in my experience, makes the character quite a bit more empathetic. Uh, you have anything to add on that, Julie? I'd love to get you weighed in because we had such a, a wonderful conversation about this. I mean, t- tell me some of the things that you've seen in your students. And, well, uh, I mean, I think, you know, just thinking of myself as a young 23, 24-year-old student at, at Iowa when I was getting my MFA, I, um, I wrote stories that I thought were cool. And I mean cool, they were cool because people liked them, and I, you know, I got a lot of praise in workshop. Um, and they were also cool emotionally, right? So I wrote a lot of stories about young, damaged women, you know, like, you know, some of it audio, autobiographical, but very distant, a very distant point of view. Um, terrible things happened to these girls. And when I was re- when I was writing these stories, I didn't really feel that much. Mm. And and then when people read them, I feel like they were feeling a lot, but maybe they were like inserting their own sort of interpretations in this like generalized. And um, and I think I was writing really safe stories at the time, which people were ca- talk- calling risky because they had some sexual tension in them and it wasn't until I was much older 
you know, recently, that I was able to write about sex with a more nuanced, you know, vulnerable, authentic, you know, I think that's really what is most important. And, you know, I work mostly as a teacher with literary writers, um, which means that, you know, they're asking their readers to work in a different way to interpret, you know, there's more interpretive work. Um, you know, my uh, my ideal reader isn't maybe as literary as theirs. You know, um, I want my reader to feel more guided. But it is really difficult to, A, even get them to write a dramatized sex scene. And also, and I think if you went home and looked at some of your favorite contemporary literary fiction writers that you would see that there are really a lot of holes um you know just sort of the curtain closing and I think it's really about that fear of um being overt and showing too much emotion you know and or the fear of sentimentality and and melodrama but as we were talking (laughs) I was thinking I, I said something about how um how can you know what what's the, you know the heart of your story? How can you inform yourself as the writer, right? Even before you inform the reader of what it is that's a, you know that you're writing about, or why you're writing about these characters in this moment, or these characters together, without going sort of jumping off that cliff into a little bit of maybe sentimentality or melodrama. You can always step back after you've informed yourself of like that deep, dark sort of vulnerable stuff that often happens when you're writing about a vulnerable moment, right? Which sex can be. Um, so yeah, I think that that we have to not stop ourselves short of even going there, because you can always revise. Right. <laughs> right. Cheryl Strait always says, "Write one scene more than you think you should." Mm. And I think that's she's like, you can always take it out. Why don't mm. you just write it? Like that thing, you're like, no, I can stop here. Probably you can't. Probably mm. you need to write that. Mm. I have a li- I have a tiny little story about Cheryl. I did a okay. workshop with her. I love her. You know, she, I, I love her. I love her writing. Um, she read us a scene from Wild that had the word clitoris in it. It was that scene where she actually um, meets a man uh, later on on the trail. She's almost healed. She's almost, you know, there. And she decides to let go of the guilt of her divorce. She has sex with this man. It's a very sweet scene. She's, you know, she's healing. Um, and her editor told her, you, we've got to take this word out. You've got to write this scene without the word. And so then she read us the initial scene. It was just a paragraph. It was very short. It wasn't indulgent at all. And then uh, the the three sentences that were left after that, where she like clutches a hat in her hand, and that's you know, then you know she's having an orgasm because she's clutching a cowboy hat in her hand. Um, and the whole class was like, "Oh, we like the clitoris scene." And she's like, "I know, me too." You know, but the I, you know, I guess they were like, "Well, it's not a bestseller if you have the word clitoris in it." So that, there's a little there's a little. She also tells this story about they wanted her to take out um, having had an abortion. And her editor said, we want people to like you. And she said, I, well, I need to keep this in. Yeah. And, and she, this is not like a, this is, she says this publicly. I mean, yeah. She says, and the editor, her editor said, I don't think you need to keep this in. And Cheryl said, no, I really need to keep this in. Yeah. So, I think she made the right call on that one. Um, but so, yeah. 
Um, on sentimentality, I don't know if either of you have read John Irving's tremendous piece in the New York Times in praise of sentimentality, yes. uh, which is an incredible piece, which is about the whole thing you were just talking about. I strongly encourage that to anyone. Also, Gina Frangelo was mentioned er- early, er, but John Irving definitely goes there. Um, and he talks about the rich tradition and how it's been squashed in the last... I think he was writing it like in about 2000 and was talking about how it's been squashed over the last 15 years. Um, um, Gina Frangelo was mentioned. Um, she, her two books, uh, a life. Well, she has a life in men and slut lullabies are both tremendous books with rich, vibrant, tr- tremendous sex scenes. I want to ask Robin and Wendy about the experience in your personal life. One question I get asked all the time, and we got asked a lot in Chicago. Is, so, how does it work in your personal life? Like, how do you go have dinner with your mom or your grandma or, or you know? You mean after you've written a book that has a lot of sex scenes or in essays it? or whatever? Like, how do you, you know? Go well, if you it? have my mom, it's not a problem. <laughs> She's like, you go and whatever, fuck them. You know, I mean, obviously, like that's where I got it from that I could do this. Uh, um, but it is weird, you know. It is weird when you've put that much of your uh, well, I mean, and ours are a memoir, so it's, you know, we have no, oh, that was fiction, you know, even right. if that's a lie, you can say it at least, and I'm really looking forward to writing fiction and being able to do that, but when it's a memoir, you can't. Um, it, it, well, it's touchy, um, and it's scary, because, you know, people come up to you and they've, like, read, you know, yeah. when you have trouble having an orgasm, and when you got violent that time with your ex, and, you know, they know a lot they know about a lot. you. Yeah. But, I mean, what, the thing I always use to comfort myself is, like, are we really all that different? I mean, the details might be a little different in that sex scene I wrote, but, you know, I, I just don't believe any of us you know, apart from like a, you know, some, a member of ISIS or something is like all that different. I'm not even sure they're that different. I mean, they might need some sex. Have you had weird <laughs> Yeah. We'll send that suggestion to the State Department when we're here. Um, in my, did you have weird experiences? Did you have oh, people sorry. say in your personal life? I don't mean from strange, from trolls or whoever, but I mean, oh yeah, oh my god, did, did yeah, I've got. Say, oh my god, how you know? Um, yeah, everyone from trolls, you know, trying to date me on Facebook. But because, people you knew. Oh, people I knew, people knew. You know, people I knew. I know personally have been great. I have to say, and um, and the other thing that helps with that, I, which is what I meant to say before I went off on ISIS, is um, <laughs> I really believe, and I've always believed this as a reader, and I believe it as a writer. The page is a sacred space. You know, I mean, the level of craft you bring to it is debatable always, and and you always will work on it, and you will never be satisfied. I don't think with what you've done, but but apart from the level of craft and how well you've pulled it off. The actual page, if you've tried your best to show up and translate something, you know, human, the page is a sacred space. So whatever I've said about myself in that sacred space, to me it's like I've whispered it to you in a confessional. It was you on your couch with a glass of wine, in silence, reading what I wrote in my little office in silence. And that's a sacred communication, so whatever comes across those wires, to me it's sacred. That's how. That's at least how I let myself sleep at night. That's great advice, Wendy. Um, I was going to say that the it's easy for me in terms of what my mother thinks because I my mother doesn't know about this book. 
We have the kind of relationship where we never talk about writing. It's not, to her, this writing has always been a hobby. And so by nature of the relationship, it is not something that comes up. We don't talk about it. Um, my extended family, especially via Facebook, have read the book, know the book. Uh, my father also passed away a few months before the book came out, so I did not have to deal with that because he would have found out about the book even if I had tried to keep it from him. But um, my extended family has been great. Nobody asks me direct questions about it. Um, and people close to me have also been super supportive. Um, but I also feel like when I talk to people who've read the book, who know me, sometimes we're talking and I feel like I see something happening on their face and I, it, it's like they know these secret things about me and I'm like, I have a moment of, of a little bit of panic. And there are definitely times when I will open the book to any given page and read it and be like, oh my God, that's out there. People have read that. I still have those moments. Um, but I'm still proud of the book and I'm proud that it's out there. And this, the other sex writing that I've written, also memoir, that's just like published on websites, um, journals, things like that. Um, I feel like, again, people... You know, people are accepting, and people have been really, like, they, they will tell me, like, this was great. This totally turned me on. And I'm like, fantastic, success. So it's all been supportive in that sense, and I don't feel like I'm exposing too much. Um, when, I, when I think about, like, what I write now and my, my partner, sometimes I, I will, like, throw out to her, like, oh, yeah, so I'm going to be writing this thing. Um, I'm going to be writing these cock vignettes. I'm going to be writing like uh, about all the cocks that I've known. How do you feel about that? Um, and you know, she there's always a moment where she's like, okay, but her 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 overall support comes in the form of like, I wouldn't do that, but you do plenty of things that I would never do, and so I support you. Um, and also, you know, she has the benefit of like excavation sort of ends with her and um, you know she's like and I hope that your cock vignettes end with my cock and I'm like alright you know like I can probably write that in so you know it's uh, so there's definitely a level of acceptance that I feel very good about when I'm writing about sex um, but I definitely run things by her just because I'm like okay this is going to go out there eh, you know but it's generally supportive it does need to be heavily negotiated in a, in a current intimate relationship, I would say. And I, I've heard that from every writer who deals with it, and it's been the case with me, too. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you're, you know, when you write about sex, you're not just writing about you. There's other people involved. Right. And so if they're anonymous and it's in the past, all well and good. But if you're living with someone or married to someone now and they're in the book, right. it's tricky. Right. Or I sometimes write about ex-partners who... Maybe their current spouses don't know right. some of their past adventures. Right. Um, so, yeah, it can get tricky. Um, one more question for all of you, and then we're going to open it up to you. Um, some of you are editors. Uh, many of you are teachers. And I'm interested in hearing about the uh, advice that you give to students about what to write, what not to write. And um, we did this in Chicago, and Luis Orea 
I don't know if any of you have read him. He's a fabulous writer. Um, Hummingbird's Daughter and Devil's Highway and his uh, memoir, Nobody's Son. I invited Luis to be on the panel. He said, you know, Anne, I've been writing for, you know, 40 years now. No one's ever asked me to talk about sex. I can't believe that. I'm like, well, come. I'll talk to you about it. So he came in, and I said, Luis, you're going to be the first. I'm going to toss the first question to you. And he said, okay, what's it going to be about? I said, that scene in your memoir which she wrote like 30 years ago. I said, that scene in your memoir where you're 12 and you're going to visit the prostitutes in Mexico, and then when you go back when you're 21, he's like, oh my God. He's like, okay. And his wife was there, and he was like, okay, I'm ready. So he was great. Um, and then talked about that very openly and charmingly, as he always is. Um, I strongly encourage you to read his writing. But he told this great story about the best piece of um, sex writing advice he'd ever received. He was a student in the 70s, and Ursula Le Guin was his instructor, and she called him Luisita, and she said, okay, so you're going to go out there and you're going to write about sex, you have to promise me this one thing, and he said, okay, and she said, I never want you to write a scene where there's a beautiful woman, and she stops, and she looks at herself in the mirror, and she Mm. says, I have great breasts, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and he sort of looked at her, and she said, because men always do that, and women never stop and look at themselves in the mirror and say, I have great breasts, so you can never do that, and he said, okay, Ursula, I promise you I'll never do that, not that. Well, Ashley will see you after the. Uh, um, well, Ursula wouldn't approve, but I think she, I think her point was is yes. that don't write for male gaze. It was all the time. I think that was her what her point was. And so he was talking about how that was the best piece of advice. What's the best piece of advice you give to your students or that you've received? I just want to say something about Ursula K. Le Guin first. Have any of you guys read The Left Hand of Darkness? Yes. Oh my gosh. So, you have to read it tonight. (laughs) Um, I think that was the only book about sex, even though it doesn't seem like it's about sex. I can't give it away. (laughs) That I was assigned in college. Um, uh, So... um, you know, I'm just realizing now that I don't think any of my teachers, any of them, ever said anything about sex. I'm just going to put that out there. Um, yeah. So what would you tell your students? Is this being recorded? Um, so I think that um, it has a lot to do with point of view. And that there really is no such thing, I know you're not going to believe this, you can be like, whatever, as good or bad sex writing, but it has to be authentic, again, you know, to your character. And, you know, if you're inside, if you're close to your character's experience, sensory-wise, emotionally, um, you know, that visually, that if the reader is experiencing... Um, the events, which it's really just events, right, through the character's unique filter in a way that informs the reader of the character and their fears and desires and needs, um, it's going to be incredibly valuable. I mean, I think it has to be as useful as any other scene or details, right? Like we always talk about details have to work hard and that means they have to reveal something. And often they can do more than one thing at a time, right? So it could be an interesting scene that you get to see visually, right? It could turn you on. It could also make you laugh. It could reveal some important information about the character um, or their relationship. A good sex scene can characterize the character's 
you know, unique, unique from each other, their relationship, the situation, the world, the mood. Um, and I think that all comes through if it's through a unique and authentic point of view. Thanks, Jerome. That's really easy. <laughs> I know, yeah. I, I, I agree. I, I also didn't have any uh, teachers teach me explicitly about... Yeah, right. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really sad. Um, yeah, and I agree that the male gaze is really boring. Um, it's really played out. It's very 20th century. <laughs> I don't like to see it in writing I get. You know, in sex scenes, I, I get it unnamed or... Um, and other uh, manuscripts that are submitted to me. It's a and do you see, still see a really lot? static way of describing a physical situation. Um, do you see a lot of bad sex scenes? As an uh, from time to time, yeah, sure, sure. It's rare to see good. It, you know, I just look for originality, just like you do in any other situation. Yeah, just like show me something I haven't seen before. You know, we're always looking for that as editors. We're always looking for a, a recognizable situation rendered unrecognizably. I feel like, uh, you know, early on I did have a teacher who turned me on to um, Fat City by Leonard Gardner. Mm-hmm. And there there's a really good two-sentence sex scene. It's something like, silently calling her a name that was not her own, he persevered to a realm beyond all personality. <laughs> and I thought, oh yeah, I get it. <laughs> but yeah, there's no description of anatomy there or anything. It's just like, it's how that person was thinking in that situation. Uh, so, yeah, I feel like, um, yeah, I would, I, would I, I, I hate to be boring, you know, as, as boring as the male gaze, but I feel like uh, I got a second Julia here. You know, as a fiction writer, as an editor, as a reader, I, I think it should be based in character, and I look for originality. I want to see something I haven't seen before, and it, I don't care if it's explicit. In fact, I love your, Robin, I absolutely love your... Uh, remark about uh, Cheryl Strade's experience with the word clitoris. I think that's great. You know, obviously that scene needed that word. You know, it's not the same scene without it. Yeah. yeah. Every mm-hmm. sex scene needs that word. <laughs> <laughs> In real life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, when I think back, I don't think that I had teachers in my MFA program talking about sex writing, so I have to go find it myself. And I took a class with Lydia Yuknovich online a few years ago, probably four, three or four years ago. And it was like called sex, no, it was called ecstatic states, mm-hmm. sex, death, something. Um, and what I feel like I learned from that and what I carry with me and what I knew, but it was like so fully articulated and we were practicing it in our workshop, um, was get into your body. Like your body does not lie. So anytime I start to feel like I'm getting separated from the scene that I'm writing, I have to go right back into my body and try to describe it from that place because that's where, for me, it gets super authentic. I can't, I, I, I can't lie there, so it's, you know, it's, it's just going to get more and more complex as I talk about what's happening all over my body, inside my body, outside, and then, you know, emotion, too. But that, to me, is where I constantly, when I'm reading writing, I'm like, if I'm reading something that... I can see is striving to be sexy, but the body is somehow left out. And I'm not talking like just anatomical stuff. I'm talking about like sensations and, you know, all of it. 
then I start thinking like, hey, writer, get back into your body. Like, I'm not feeling this with you. Mm. Um, so that's, that's, what I, that's what I would suggest. Um, I have three tips for writing a sex scene. Uh, and the first one relates primarily to memoir. Um, I, think, I think in some ways it's easier to do it in memoir because you're you're dealing with an organic memory, you're, and there's information in that memory. You, you there, are, whereas in fiction, you really have to make intellectual almost decisions about what this character would remember and what it all means. But in your own body and memory, you have that information. So, you know, some sex scenes in my book are very detailed, and there are body parts because I was interested in that in that moment, and that's what I remember. And I was really on an exploration where I was, you know, um, interested in all that stuff. And then others are really all the thoughts that were running through my head. There's almost nothing about the body because sometimes that's how sex is, especially for a woman. You're just in your head. You're not, you know, you're not. Um, you're kind of stuck up there during the whole thing. And I wanted to record that, how it actually is. I think there's a Darth of of that. Um, And because it was a memoir. Uh, And so, you know, the goal in memoirs is a lot different in fiction, too. You're really crafting something much more crystallized, I think, in fiction. But um, so if you're doing it in memoir, the easy way to know what to put in and what to leave out is what most potently floats up into your memory. You know, if if you're thinking back to that sex scene and all you remember is that he played the Pixies on his, you know, laptop afterwards and you had never heard that Pixie song before, guess what? That's what's important about that scene to the story. And in another one, it could be, you know, someone's, you know, perfectly shaped shoulder that made you see God for the first... I mean, it could be erotic. It could be physical. Um, it could be what was happening in your body or, or, or what was happening between the two bodies. But what floats up organically into your memory? And honestly, in some sex memories, nothing floats up into the memory. And you're like, I'm going to skip that one. You know, it's, <laughs> it's just like, you know. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, um, if you're a woman writing a sex scene, pretend no man will ever read it. <laughs> then you'll avoid the male gaze because we're very used to being objectified, worrying about how we look, even on the page. Um, it doesn't mean that no man will ever read it, and, but you will serve the men who read it by pretending they won't. I've had so many men write to me who have actually read the book saying, oh my God, I understand now what's going on with my wife. We had the best talk of our lives after I read your book. So, you know, and I think that's because I was pretending no man would ever read it. It was between me and other women. And my goal was to go into a woman's mind and body. Uh, and then I, for, I don't know what my third point was. Um, oh, it was this. <laughs> Sex on the page, and one of the reasons I think it's so tricky, and and, and, um, these two great fiction writers were telling us a lot about not giving too much away and not going overboard, Uh, you are seducing a reader. You're bringing them into a very intimate space, so, so be careful. You know, you, you don't want to bang them over the head with it the minute you get into it. Uh, or if you do, you know, know that you're doing that 
sometimes that's the way sex works. You bang somebody over the head and start having sex with them. But uh, you, you have to remember that this reader is being taken into this intimate space. You're taking them there. And so the same rules that apply to seduction apply to writing a sex scene. A little at a time, maybe. You know, go into the detail and then come out, or go all the way in and overwhelm them and then, like, have them land on the shore and wonder what just happened. But whatever you're doing, remember, you know, you're in an erotic space. So treat it like an erotic space. Yes, Julia. Really quick. Um, I just wanted to say also that, you know, some of my, this is really strange that I'm admitting this to you guys, but, um, that I feel sometimes more comfortable writing sex scenes through male character perspectives. So, which, you know, I just don't understand how that's possible. And I think they're pretty good. I mean, hopefully that's true. Don't, you know. But I do think that it's hard sometimes, you know, in fiction, but also in memoir as well, because, you know, every, you know, the great memoirs that I read, you know, people are imagining what other characters who may not be their gender are thinking um, that, you know, sort of giving yourself exercises to write a sex scene through the perspective of someone who is seemingly completely unlike you, you know, like really testing yourself and not stopping yourself because a character isn't, you know, you. Um, Yes. So, thank you. Imagination. Yeah. Thank you, all of you. Questions from the audience? Don't be shy. Uh, yes. Well, this is for everybody. Um, in all the responses that you've gotten from your books, have you ever felt like your work has been misunderstood? <laughs> and if so, is there a common way that it has been misunderstood? Wow. One of the most interesting notes I got on my book was from my grandmother. <laughs> my book is uh, written from uh, eight different points of view, five of which are female. And, wow, I love that. Yeah. So, uh, and she asked, "Why did you hire these women to r- help you write your book?" That is the and and why? Did you not put their names on the cover? Like she basically accused me of theft and misogyny, and and I was like, you, "No, I wrote those." And she's like, "No, you didn't." Um, and so yeah, it was a nice compliment, but uh, yeah, I thought that was unusual. Yeah, a, a few times I've I've gotten things to that extent, but for the most part, um, most of the criticism around my book when it hasn't based around an apprehension of whether or not I wrote it <laughs> has to do with uh, the swearing. Uh, my book has the word Midwest in the title, so a lot of Midwesterners read it, and there's a pretty decent quotient of them that are unhappy with the swearing in it. Mm-hmm. I've had people come up to me at my readings, walk up to me at a table like this, sit down in front of everyone and say, you know, I would recommend my book, your book to my book group, but the language, you know, I will not be buying it for people this Christmas. I'm like, well, well, thank you. You know, like, I'm glad you, you gave it a shot. You know, it's like, it sold one copy, I guess. You know? But uh, mostly, mostly that, I guess. I, that's a really bland answer, but that's so far my experience. Um, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at your question, but you know what it is? It's just that, wow, 
I had no idea what I was putting out into the world, into the tiny little world that has read my book. Um, But I didn't really, I guess I'm the kind of writer that I write because I have to write or I'll like lose my mind if I don't. And it's how I make sense of everything. So I wrote a book that I thought was about women, mostly women and relationships and being a person. But But then when I sold it, it was a parenting book and most of the characters are mothers and so i really i think i think that if i had known what the reaction from readers was going to be that it would have i don't know if it would have held me back you know i it was like a very pure that first publication experience where i had no idea how intense or controversial these unlikable women characters would be and um so it was hard for me you know like I have a lot of Goodreads reviews which I'm really grateful for that just anyone even if they didn't read it just press something (laughs) um but you know it is like it's like they either love this book or they hate it and I don't read the reviews. Occasionally, accidentally, I'll read one somewhere, and I'm like, you know, consumer Sorry, reviews. We all do it. And um, <laughs> but you know, I just that was the book I had to write, you know. And I'll always be writing about the same things through different characters and different worlds. And people might call them different kinds of books, but it, I'm just writing about fear and need and obsession and greed. So. You know, I think in this world of of social media, which I love, and constant, like, there's no such thing as privacy, even when you're a fiction writer and pretending like it's not you, um, that there is this feeling that I have to fight about, like, being correct or politically correct or, I don't even know if it's political, just correct. Um, And especially in terms of being a woman, a mother, writing characters who are women, sometimes mothers. And it's really something that I have to fight you know, like I worry a lot about what people think about me. So I need to keep that out of my fiction <laughs> somehow. Thank you, Wendy. Um, I'm remembering now that there was like one time when I looked at comments, because um, I generally don't look at comments, but I looked at the comments after I was profiled by the LA Times. And um, I looked at some comments. And one of them was from someone who identified as a woman who described she she couldn't have read my book. My book had just come out, so she didn't read it. But she said this this is a whitewashing of of an experience, and uh, you know it was like all the fears that I had that I imagined would um, would be inspired by this book. Um, so probably it's all there in the comments somewhere, but I'm just ignoring them. I feel like. Anytime I put any of my work out there, yes, it's going to be misunderstood. Yes, people are going to project all of their stuff onto what they think my experience is. And maybe because I'm also a therapist, I'm used to that. And I feel like I can, you know, somebody can come to me and like tell me what they think the book is about. And I can be like, hmm, all right, like the book becomes its own thing. I don't. I don't have an expectation that everybody's going to read it and be like, "I totally understand this," and or, or they do, and they really don't. You know, um, it's okay. So I feel like maybe it's the therapist part of me that can sort of separate and go, "All right, 
you're going to have your own feelings about this. You maybe totally misunderstand me, but the book is out in the world doing its thing and it has having its own impact on you and I'm happy for that. Yeah, I agree. It's I think every writer takes that risk. Um, the reader is bringing something to the table. It's not a one-way communication. Um, it seems like it on the surface, but it's not. And so, and the more vulnerable it is, and we can just because this is the topic, you know, the more sex it contains, the more uh, ripe it is for complete projection. Um, so yes. I've had people completely, obviously, misunderstand my book. Uh, but I would also say that um, I've learned, you know, because it's a memoir, again, maybe this happens with fiction too, my interpretation of it changes as time goes on. And that should always be happening, I think, in our lives. We, we don't want to just stick with one static story um, and have no new information or wisdom come in. Um, and some of the people who, who seemed to have misunderstood my book or who responded to it, sometimes in emails, um, sometimes in reviews, in ways that I didn't like to hear about at first. One, one review on Amazon said uh, it was a, a very sad story about the dissolution of a marriage. Um, and now over time, I've come to see that that's actually true. It is that. Uh, it's that among other things. I've had other people write to me and say, I'm free. Oh my God, I've gotten out of my 20 year, you know, sexless marriage because I read this book. So you see how, you know, those two different people, and you know what? Both of those are in there. Both of those are true. So I would say, um, yes, it'll be misunderstood. And sometimes those reactions are just the ones you might need to hear as a writer. Yeah, I'm not sure if I even still understand what my book is. Yeah, it's about. I think that's yeah. good if you and don't that, understand yeah, yourself. Yeah, because I didn't write it. I, didn't, I don't write to figure that out. I write right. because I have to. Just otherwise, bad things happen. Yes. Once you confronted writing about sex, and like you open up the conversation for like feeling what's missing about sex, like how do you continue to get stay excited about writing about it? I'm just a beginner. I won't. I don't want to write about it for maybe ever. Maybe maybe just for a while. It's like having a lot of sex. Then you just want to go watch TV or something, or go to the store and buy you know some bread. I I don't want to write. And seriously. I am sick of talking about it. I'm sick of writing about it. I'm sick of thinking about it. So it's like anything else. I mean, if I'd written a book about dogs, I would want to then write something about cats. I mean, hmm. my interest in that level can't be sustained. I think when you're writing with different characters in every story, every story has different characters, every novel or, you know, memoir, um, I imagine, you know, different phases of your life that those different characters experience sex differently. Right. And I think it's really about the how and not the what, you know. I mean, there are a lot of things you can do sexually, but it's definitely, could it be finite? I don't know. <laughs> let's pretend it's finite. Okay, let's just pretend. And um, it's different through each character's unique experience. Mm -hmm. So... You know, right now I have I'm working on a new book, and they're having 
different sex, a lot of which I'd learned about from our panels, <laughs> I was like, I am going to write surprising sex. And, um, you know, it's, it's, I'm not bored, and actually it's revealing a lot to me about the characters, because I have to write a whole draft of a book before I even know what, who they are. Also, you answer some questions, and that then new questions come up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you've written this, but then, but wait a minute, what about the new questions come up? And then when you're writing the next thing, you're exploring new facets of it, and new, you're answering new questions, at least for, that's true for me. I'm remembering like 13 years ago, a literary journal rejecting my work because they said that it was like, they, they weren't really interested in, in stuff that was about love and sex. And I was like, this is all that I write. Like, I mean, for me, I feel like I'm always going to write about sex. Like, there's a wealth of stuff there for me. And it is always going to change. As I age, it changes. So I'm, I, I'm just going to keep going over this material. And I'm also going to look back at the sex that I had. And I see it differently now than I did then. And so I, it's totally a rich vein that I'm going to keep going back to. I changed my mind now. I, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. Right here in the front row. Um, this is a question for the nonfiction writers. Um, I write a feminist sex blog, and I write it anonymously because I want to have total freedom in writing about the people that I sleep with. And so, um, but I'm about to adapt it into a book, and I'm going to out myself. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit to, you touched on this, but speak a little bit to writing about people who potentially will read the book and if you felt free to write whatever or if that uh, colored how you wrote in any way? Well, I anonymized everyone um, unless they, they specifically told me they didn't want to be. Um, so I not only changed their name, but I would change, uh, and I would try to change as much as I could without changing kind of the feel of the encounter, but I changed hair color, height, occupation, things that weren't critical, you know, so just so that they and their sisters and their current wives and whoever would not notice themselves. Um, well, they will probably notice themselves, but no one else would. Um, so that's one thing uh, that I recommend. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's the best thing you could do, is really just anonymize as much as you can Don't without taking away from the reader's experience, just try as much as you can to protect the identities, at least, of the other people because, you know, they this they did not probably walk into having sex with you thinking they're going to end up on a page. Unless they do, uh, you know, but usually people don't. So. I keep a little stack of disclosure. <laughs> yeah, a disclosure form. It's, it can be tricky, though, because you can, I mean, I have old boyfriends who are friends. I wrote this piece that's now the second chapter of my memoir that is becoming a real issue between a friend of 20 years who was my um, we had a lot of adventures with sex and drugs and international travel. And his wife is a Sunday school teacher, not to, not to be pejorative about Sunday school teachers, but she's just not led that sort of life at all, and she would be shocked if she realized. So uh, it's tricky, and we've spent a lot of time navigating that, but I think we've gotten to a place where he's okay about what's going to be coming out. There's nothing wrong with getting in touch with people and you know talking to them um, about it. I mean, I did that with a lot of people. Yeah. It's good material. Come talk to me after. 
you want to say? You're so generous to answer my question as I blurted out because what you're talking about with Namaka is so interesting. And I've been thinking and thinking and dwelling. You're very, you just really got me. I'm going to dive into your work. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and thank you for that. This predatory influence in Melissa Nutting's work and maybe why, and also the best book of essays I've ever read, Loitering by the Seattle writer. And you know, we all know the story of this teacher who married her young student and um, a brilliant essay. By Charlie D'Ambrosio, you're talking yes, about. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Loitering, a wonderful book. Best book done. <laughs> um, why are we able to see this predatory impulse so clearly on women, where Nabokov was able to bring this book out? And could you explore and talk about that? I mean, so what you, you know, this, I'm really interested in these women writers who are trying to empower the female gaze. And I think we have to go way to that extreme before we even begin to understand where we are. And the daring of women who are with the ability to explore that extreme, I find very interesting. And um, maybe you would join in and maybe talk a little bit about the predatory gaze and why is it we're able to see it in women and we're not even interested in seeing it in men. I think we are interested in seeing it in men when they're um, sexually abusing young boys, as we've witnessed with the Catholic Church and with Penn State. Tremendous outrage that I'm not sure I believe would have been the same had it been the same number of young women being abused. I think that's an I think it's a tremendous tragedy. I think it's tremendously important that there has been the exposure that there is. I'm not convinced at all that there would have been the same treatment and the same media outrage and that the Boston Globe would have spent the same amount of time had a, a group of young women had hundreds. And not, not that there weren't young women affected and abused during it was part of the, sex, the Catholic Church's sexual abuse scandal, but I think that we are more compassionate as a culture towards young boys being sexually abused, honestly. Um, so I think we do see men as predators, but not necessarily um, towards women so often. My personal opinion is is that it's all sort of the continuum of the patriarchy, that it's how we treat women and girls in the world, mm-hmm. that women and girls are objectified and, you know... And we've been working on this issue of domestic violence on black men. It seems that we're always taking um, taking this element in, in, and we're working. You know, it's just, it's, and I just I appreciate Elizabeth. I think she's really trying to get at female agency, and I really I think she's trying to get at this this what we're working towards. And I really think if we're free to explore these extremes then we're going to see it more clearly. And I just really applaud women like yourself who are looking at that. Yeah, Yeah, I think Alyssa's book, uh, I think that her book, it's about the power of women, but also don't shortchange. It's also about don't see women as nice and docile. Women are perfectly capable of being terrible monsters too. I don't necessarily think it's empowering, but it's we have to see women in their full... um, glory and horror, perhaps. Thank you so much for your help in this. It's really, your, your contribution this evening has been really... Thank you. Does, do others want to this chime in? Great. Thank um, you. I think if Lolita was like the third person point of view, that we wouldn't even be talking about it. But that's more of a technical thing. I think that there's something about the first person point of view. Right, that we go so into hunger, yeah. You know, and and also it's just not acceptable. It's it's acceptable. I mean, even though we want to say that it's not, 
You mean the, 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 you know, that men, you know, abusing young girls is just... Oh, yeah, I mean, it's... It's just, you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's have a whole nother night where we talk just about you. Um, you all can come over to my house. I'm going to talk to um, Yes, right here. And then um, in the back. I have a question for Wendy. <laughs> so I feel like people can be really judgmental about sex and not just like consuming it and people. I feel like in my life, I'm, I, this is just what you want surrounded by, I guess. But I feel also really judged by like progressive, free thinking people who like to label sex as like, this is good sex and this is bad sex. This is cool sex and this is lame sex. Like, this is safe sex and this is like abusive, fucked up, traumatic sex. And like, I think excavation is so awesome and interesting because there aren't those labels, you know? Like, it is so confusing and you like are turned on but also find that perverse. And I'm just wondering, like, personally, for you, like, when you started writing it and throughout that process of writing it, what did you feel like an ambiguity about your experience or had you come to a conclusion about it personally and like now you still feel ambiguous about it so when i first started writing it i was well, let me back up and just say that like, I wrote it as fiction for many years before i actually committed to writing it as it happened um, which is how I even came into memoir, was always writing my life as fiction because I was too afraid to say, oh, look, this happened to me. When I first started writing it, like 23 years old, I was also in therapy. I was also in a college, a small college town where I was getting increasingly politicized and um, having had this experience, I felt very much like the people around me. If I had ever tried to describe the truth of the experience, um, people would have immediately said, oh, no, like, that's not okay, and you were raped, and, and yes, there are, all, there are all these truths, but they can all exist at the same time. And it took me many years before I could actually go, oh, okay, it, it, it felt complicated as it was happening, um, and I can, I, I can see what it is on so many different levels. It's not just one thing. Just as the person who was the perpetrator is not simply just a perpetrator. He is a human being, and I knew him in a certain way. So, ha- you know, trying to describe that without making him just some, like, you know, flat villain was really important to me. But I also knew... Over, the, over time, I felt like I became more aware of how to, to write this in a more nuanced way that was more true to the experience than just saying, like, yes, this happened and it was bad. That's it. You know, but that I felt like I was surrounded by people for a period of time who were very judgmental and I wouldn't have felt safe describing the full story to them. Mm. And it so it took many years to get to that place. And it's still somewhat ambiguous to me because, you know, I thought I was in love and there were all of, it, it had all of the trappings of a, of a relationship. So, um, yeah, my feelings about it still change, you know. It's complicated. Thank you. I think we'll take one more. Um, can you guys talk about your nitty-gritty craft decisions in your sex scenes, your word choices, for instance, I... My whole book, I didn't use the word penis. 
excellent investigative effort. So, especially in your first draft, how did your draft meetings, did they reveal something to you about yourself and your own bias or thought processes around sex or your own hangups? I want to talk about the word clitoris. <laughs> um, you know, I've probably said it out loud like eight times in my entire life. <laughs> that was my eighth, I think. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm really kind of a prude, I guess. God, that's so lame. So, um, I'm surprised. Well, you know, it's interesting, the, the Cheryl Strayed story. I can't remember who talked about it first, but... Um, you know, it's interesting because I guess that was like a marketing decision, right? You know, like my editor was like, more sex. <laughs> um, and I was like, no. And and it was really like, there was this silent pressure of, we will buy this book if you like to stop being such a wimp about the sex scenes. I feel, you know, it, it wasn't said but it was definitely like there's something missing here. Um, so I used words that the characters would use, right? So it depends. Again, I keep saying the same thing. It's getting kind of boring. But the point of view, right? Like there's some characters, right? Or you as a person, if you're writing memoir, nonfiction, who wouldn't use that word, right? They would like, you know. So I think it really is... Um, I think techni the technicality of a sex scene, sort of like the issue or the, the worry about it lifts when you really know that character. So there might be something where you need to like get a little notebook and write about that character's fantasies and what they think about when they masturbate, you know, like what they think about when they're having sex with this person versus this person so that you feel comfortable going into it. I mean, so much of writing is sort of tricking yourself into having that like delusional confidence no it's good you know that you know somebody that doesn't exist even though they're probably part of you so I think that finding ways to feel confident so that when you're going into that scene um, and then also the sensory details I mean that's just like smell and taste you know um, you know I, it took me a long time to figure that out <laughs> Once again, I agree. <laughs> uh, yeah, for me, it depends on the character. I mean, I have one character in my book who refers to an ex-boyfriend of hers as tuna can because of the shape of his dick. And uh, no other character in that book would do that, but Brock would. And it was a hell of a lot of fun to write Brock, but not all of my characters were as sexually progressive or liberated as Brock or as sexually active. So it really depended on what the prerogative of the characters were and where they were at that point in their lives. Um, and I tried to make, in each case, make it make it unique to that person. Yeah. For, for me, in nonfiction, it's easy because it's just what happened. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Um, although I will say I've left out a couple of people's word choices to spare them the embarrassment. Um, but um, in my personal life, I sort of like to work out a glossary with someone when I start having sex with them because, you know, the wrong word can really kill it. Um, and I'm a writer, so I'm picky about words, so I try to get that covered pretty early. And I've done that with my characters. Like, I've given them a glossary of the words that are their words that they like and don't like. And then I actually have a scene in the Diary of Suzanne Frank where they negotiate some language where... Suzanne says, I don't like that. 
so I have a glossary of what words they would each use and what mm. they negotiate. Mm. I also keep a glossary of phrases. You know how y'all, everybody has phrases that they use? <laughs> like, I keep a glossary for all my characters of, like, their phrases <laughs> that they use. I love that. You know, like, everybody has quirky, here's your hat, what's your hurry, because I was raised by my grandparents in large part, so I have all these, like, expressions from the 1930s. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, so, like, my husband will say, you haven't seen Back to the Future, but you've seen every Cary Grant movie 17 times. I'm like, yes, let's discuss, you know. It's just, right, so here's your hat, what's your hurry, you know. Yeah. Totally. Uh, dog in a manger, um, those sorts of things. So I have a sexual glossary for the characters. Yeah. Those are from my grandmother, but the sexual glossary is not from my grandmother. But, um, what's a dog in a manger? <laughs> dog in a manger, it's yeah. like dressing up. Oh. Like he's trying to be, oh, I you know, see. that's a dog in a manger. Oh, I see, I see. You know. <laughs> I see. You know. I see making like a silk purse out of a subject yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, sort of somebody pretending to be, yeah. you know. Yeah, sexual. So. Yeah. A glossary, I suggest. I, I'm just used, because it's memoir, I'm just using the words that I would normally use. And in fact, I was thinking like, I never use the word penis ever. Um... Ever. I like, you know, there's certain words that I just like, and also I'm going to use the words that I used at the time of what I'm writing about. So, you know, for many years it was dick, and then it was cock, and, you know, uh, pussy. Like, that was one that, like, for a long time I was like, oh, no, you don't call it pussy. And now I'm like, yeah, you call it pussy or you call it a cunt. And it's all good, but it's, it's like, true to what, to the period of time that I'm writing about. And that changes. So my glossary is always changing. Yeah, what she yeah. said. Um, and I actually think the um, the dirty words in the sex scenes, the words for body parts, basically, and some verbs like suck or lick, that kind of thing, are the trickiest technical part of a sex scene. That Those are the hot buttons. That's where you really want to... Um, Stay in the character's body and mind. Stay true. Don't veer off into cliche. Don't start using words you wouldn't use. Um, if you're, and then on the other hand, you know, if it was just like cock, 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 cock for five minutes during the sex scene, you can't do that on the page. You've, you've got to also pull back craft wise. Um, my agent, um, this is funny. My agent um, on like a really, really early draft. I had so many drafts. Was like. You might want to pull back on the cock, <laughs> you know, like the the the, the uh, not the cock, but like the instances of. I was really relying on that word a lot because I do like the word. Um, so then I, you know, I went back. That's what revisions are for. But you know, yeah, in as it's just coming out, I think what Wendy said. And don't trust any writing advice from people who tell you only to use penis and vagina because an alarming number, an alarming number of writers will tell you not to use any words other than that. And that's just dumb. That would be like yeah. only using those words in it's sex. Dumb, right? Would you trust that advice? Right? If you went to the self-help right. section and somebody said, never use the word to describe right. genitalia other than penis and vagina, you'd be like, right. okay, I'm never having sex with you and I'm not taking sexual advice from right. you. So don't listen advice. to writers doing that either. Yeah. It's also, it's just like an aesthetic thing. Like, I don't like the sound of the word penis. Like, yeah. it's not an attractive sounding word to me at all so I will never use it so it's always like you know I, I, I like to think that I have a little bit of a poet's mind and so 
I am always going to go for word choices that kind of reflect, and sometimes it is cock, you know, but it's definitely not, uh, there are certain words that I stay away from because it just feels like it's too clinical or it's, um, it just doesn't sound aesthetically pleasing to me. As you I'm have to walk it. the line between clinical and porny, basically. Yeah. But watch the thesaurus. Clarny. Don't get the thesaurus. <laughs> Don't get the thesaurus out too often. Because, you know, I don't know. You can I, tell what someone does. I think it's also your intention, right? Like, I love what you're saying about poetry, right? For me, I want it to sound as seamless yeah. as possible because I, you know, I don't think of my writing as poetic. I want it to just, you know, I want the reader to be in it. So I'm going to use simple language, right? right? Like, I would never use another word for suck right. because mm. right. it would feel to writer it would it would it would it would let remind them of the writer's presence mm. right mm. Um, and that would be right that's a good tip mm. that's a great that's a great tip yeah. to end on you all are great thank you so much i just want to say in other words scott is right here come show yourself scott yeah. scott can take your cash he can take your credit card um the writer's emergence but nobody tweet this or facebook this i went home from the event um in chicago and i was telling my godmother who i'm very close with andrew i was telling her about she's a poet and um uh she's ursula Ginn's best friend um and i was telling her about the event she said oh you know that writer's emergency fund 15 years ago i was broken they bought me a pair of glasses i'm like why didn't you tell me that before i was making the pitch tonight she's like well you can't tell people that i said well i'm gonna tell people that in la so nobody tweet that though i tell her um so i mean it's a real fund it helps real people um i've been really broke as often as i've been able to pay the mortgage or the rent or whatever um um, I'm fortunate to be married to a man who has a steady, a real job and steady income and all of that. Um, and I've been really broke and lived on ramen noodles for weeks and weeks at a time. And um, um, it's a real fun. People are sick. People need help. And we had a lot of choices about who this would support tonight. And we um, decided to pick this fund. And we hope that you'll join us in giving a few bucks if you can. Thank you all. You've been an amazing audience. And I want to thank all the panelists. I want to thank Skylight. I want to thank Scott. I want to thank Matthew. I want to thank Ashley. I think I forgot to thank somebody. Vernon. Vernon. <laughs> thank you, Vernon. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.